I've been a runner for as long as I can remember, and there's always been a peaceful element to that sacred loneliness of the long distance runner. Over the last three decades, I've run tens of thousands of miles while training for everything from the zippy 1500 meters up to the slow treasury of the 100 mile run. Regardless of the event though, training is always geared towards developing both the mental and physical strength needed to overcome the challenges of endurance events. Here in this episode, we tackle the physical side, looking at how humans and animals cope with stresses like heat exhaustion, lactic acid buildup, water loss, salt buildup, and more. Welcome to the Single Acorn Podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. There's plenty of whales in the sea, but you know what else there's plenty of? Trash. You blowhole humans in your garbage are making it harder than ever to simply be, well, whale. We get so bloated or tangled up that we don't know which way is up and which way is home. So we're doing our part to help out. At Sonar Cycling, we're taking trash and using it to innovate the most cutting edge technologies to assist with whale communication through thousands of miles of ocean. Invest today and get a sneak peek at our tin cans strung together with rope. Just one of the many ways we're working to improve the ocean for you and your pod. Well, hey there, fellow naturalists, and welcome to the Single Acorn Podcast. I am Professor Iwigi, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Dr. Christine Fleener. Hello, everyone. And Glenn Etter. And we have Glenn on as a guest, as many of you may know. The Olympics are coming up this summer. That's and right. What would the Olympics be without sweat moppers? Yeah, for the basketball games, to keep those courts nice and squeaky clean. So... Glenn, we're happy to have your expertise on sweat. So thanks for hey, joining us. No no sweat, T. Get no, it? I got it. I make that joke three or four times a day. <laughs> yeah, that's part of the training. Yeah, well, I want to correct one mis- misconception that I believe you may be suffering under. It's true that we I'm, I'm ahead of the sweat mop crew at the Olympics, but it's not just for basketball. There's many events where the competitors are sweating profusely. So we yeah, try like to mop our sweat- stations at all those events. The sweat mopping is an event, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, in fact, yeah, it's become group. so prevalent that, yeah, sweat mopping is itself an event. Yeah, so curling actually developed out of that for the Winter Olympics. They wanted <laughs> curling. something to stay fit Frozen during the winter months. kind of Frozen relationship. Sweat. Curling, yeah. We use a lot of their techniques. They use a lot of ours. It's co-evolution. <laughs> Do you think you make more money as a professional sweat mopper or as a professional curler? Well, first of all, I want to make it clear that the Olympics are an amateur event that we do this for the love of the sport. And <laughs> yeah. Just to kind of keep the world cleaner. A lot of a lot of our, our crew members still pr- turn pro after, you know, after the Olympics are over. So you have to kind of have the love. You know the word amateur means love. One who loves. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. I think so. I'm pretty sure. I didn't look that up because I was too busy mopping up sweat. There's a lot of sweat. <laughs> yeah. Think you would expect like archery, right? But con- you can concentrate so hard that you can start sweating. Out your brow. Out your brow, out your temples, sometimes, God forbid, out your nose. Do you re- practice by trying to clean up more viscous fluids? Like, I don't know. Sorry. I don't know if I like where this is <laughs> going at all. No, I'm not available for that. <laughs> okay. Kind of um, like how they have the donuts on the baseball bats. Yeah, yeah no, totally, that's true. We just, totally. we practice with like slime, different, we go into classroom, science classrooms, and often clean up when they're making slime as a kind of like. Do yeah. science classrooms make a lot of slime? <laughs> I think you're thinking of double yeah. dare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is there, uh, yeah, maybe I am. No, uh, I mean, I'm, this is science classes for like first and second graders. I don't know if they do it a lot in, in the postdoctoral ranks that you, you're more accustomed to. But, but I, I do I do remember you doing some research on slime. Maybe we can get back to that later. later in the oh, yeah. I was going to yeah. say my lab was a strictly slime-based lab. Uh, <laughs> uh, have you heard, you've heard of flubber, right? Well, we won't get into it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the yakitori. <laughs> yes. But anyway, thanks for bringing it up. Yeah, there's a lot of sweat out there, and uh, it helps keep the athletes cool and safe. But we, you know, you can also slip on it, and then what was originally going to keep you safe ends up hurting you. So we we hate for an athlete to suffer an ironic injury like that. <laughs> yeah. Ironic injuries are always the most tragic. Yeah. No. They're well. They're they're and they make an anecdote. Yeah. You're training for four years. You don't want just an ironic anecdote at the end of it all. No. Great. Well, Glenn, we're really going to tap into your your expertise here as we talk about the physical side of endurance. So, yeah, this last episode we talked about 
uh, sort of generally what endurance is. And we're going to talk about the physical components of endurance. And then uh, really, for me, most of uh, as a human, uh, most of endurance is really a mental uh, a mental exercise. And so in the next episode, we're going to focus on the mental side of things. Um, and all of this, again, is sort of tied in with I've been training for a 100-mile race that I'll be running in June 17th uh, out in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So very wow. exciting stuff. Can you remind me how long it's going to take you to run a 50-mile race? It's 100 miles, though. So 100 hopefully. mile race. Yeah. I'm sorry. I wasn't listening. Well, just yeah. double his answer. Just, yeah, go ahead and answer that. <laughs> yeah. 100-mile so, race. Yeah, we'll we'll pull the uh, the cat out of the bag here. So uh, I am shooting for the world record. And so the world record was 11 hours and 19 minutes. And it was just broken recently. And now it is 11 hours and 14 minutes. Uh, so that's what I will be shooting for. So it's about 6 minutes and 45 seconds per mile. For 100 miles. For 100 miles. Well, yeah. I've been counteracting your efforts by spending that amount of time, I think, on the couch. That's perfect. Yeah, that's... Watching. That keeps the earth in balance. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's Newton's uh, fourth law. Yeah, I'll be running the opposite direction. Yeah, for every 100 mile... Actually, Pat, your your, uh, <laughs> your fun... I don't know, whatever he is. Your lover, Paramore. your significant <laughs> other, your paramour. <laughs> when uh, in, in college... Uh, uh, yeah, we were having dinner, and I was. I had decided to go vegetarian, uh, and he's. And he when he got out of the dining hall, he got like two things of chicken, and he's like, "For every meal you don't eat meat, I'm gonna have twice as much chicken." <laughs> he <laughs> sounds cool. like someone that I am deeply unattracted to. Yeah, <laughs> that story. And, and you met? Yeah, you make such a yeah. And child. now he yeah, spending his life with a vegetarian. And the earth is in balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my question. And this is pertinent, I think. When you said let the cat out of the bag, do you know where that expression comes from? Fisher people. We can edit out. That was like a that was just a forty-five second pause. <laughs> leave it in, leave it in, leave it in. <laughs> Ending with Fisher people. So you know actually- when I was Oh, I was just going to say it actually used to be uh, take the bag out of the cat uh, <laughs> and then it was transposed where. Yeah, because I think that's how soccer was invented with the bladders of cats. They would kick them around. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Uh, I hate that. I know that and I can't unknow that now. Also so not true. I and, spent, but, but reversing reversing that um, language did restore the balance of the universe. I think. Yeah. Okay. I spent a, a little bit of time in Africa vaccinating cats and dogs, and everybody would always bring their cats in a bag because that was the only way you could catch a cat. You're not going to, like, put a leash on a cat and, like, drag it all the way to the the clinic. So they just bag them up in rice bags, bring them over, and then you stab them through the bag. And so maybe you guys, oh, you didn't have to take the cat out of the bag then. Dude, they but the if they got out of the bag, it was like, ah. Oh, Dang, now we got Oh, go. it was like a big event when the cat got it's out of the bag. It's a big event, yeah. Is that where it comes from, Glenn? Um, I was just reading about, apparently it refers to secrets that, so if you have a cat in a bag and you let it out, you're you're basically never going to talk it into going to the bag again. Oh, so you can't like... So untie. if you let a secret out, you can't like undo the secret, put it back into the I bag. I don't know, those kids did catch those cats and put them back in bed. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it's not a very accurate saying. Teague, shame on you for your I thought humor. it would also have something to do with the fact that all cats are demons, and then it had something to do with all <laughs> yeah. It might be that. Just in general, just given this conversation, Teague, I hope your race goes better than your, <laughs> than your My, description. Yeah. There are lots of phrases like that that are not accurate. Like, eat like a bird. Birds People, actually have oh, a really, really high metabolic rate, and so ravenous. if you ate like a bird, you would probably yeah. become quite they redundant. Them gulp things whole because they don't have teeth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't associate really eating like a bird; it's like gulping your whole dinner. Yeah, and then eating a bunch of rocks with it. <laughs> Good point. Um. So yeah, maybe we can just go ahead and start diving into some of the physical components of endurance, and so. endurance is you know it's kind of hard to pin down exactly what it is but basically it's physical exertion that takes place over a long period of time and often has a you know i said earlier as a human the mental component is a big thing and so when we talk about endurance we're not talking about trees um we're talking about 
a sort of a yeah a physiological and mechanical process that has to that you have to have brain power dedicated to overcoming some of the challenges uh, involved in that process. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of the challenges that arise when you're exerting yourself over a long period of time. And we'll talk about this as a bunch of different solutions, um, some that are conscious solutions that animals have to make and some that are subconscious or morphological uh, or physiological that are adaptive or that have evolved through deep time. And yeah, so what are some of the the challenges if you're physically exerting yourself? What are you going to run into? What are some of the um, physical roadblocks that prevent you from doing physical activity forever Fuel. at an intense rate? What run was out that? of gas. Run out of gas. Need that fuel? Yeah, gotta use all those little uh, squeezy things that they do in marathons. Little squeezies. <laughs> yeah, all the little squeezies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a question. <clears throat> Is there any biofuel that can be used for equally well for cars and people? Like they could both use it. Oil uh, isn't that like, like vegetable oil? oil? I mean, it seems like it'd be bad for you in a race, for example. Ah, yeah. I mean, it depends on the length of the race, right? So anything that's relatively short, like it, say you were doing something that was like months long, then potentially having a high fat diet would be sustainable in the long run but if you are doing anything shorter your body is going to be relying mostly on glycogen stored carbs and so if you were taking in nothing but fat uh you wouldn't be replenishing your glycogen stores fast enough yeah with ultra marathons you sort of tip over after you get about two hours of super intense physical exercise. So if you're doing marathon pace stuff, you're in what's called your lactate threshold zone. And when you're in that, you are burning down your carbs uh, or your glycogen and you can't replace them fast enough. And so eventually you're going to hit a tipping point where you're going to have to start metabolizing fat. But taking in fat is not a rapid process to... Or you, there, can't it's not a, you can't just metabolize. You can't just start away. burning fat. <clears throat> that you ingest but you can do that with glycogen Uh, like there are studies where you like as soon as you have glycogen or sugars in your mouth uh your body uh, like perks up and gets the physiological benefits as though you were digesting it and so there's this like mental component where you're tricking yourself into thinking that you have more glycogen than you actually have Um, but i don't think you'd be able to fuel with fats fast enough or you'd be able to translate those into energy fast enough got it and the the lactation zone that's where you uh you produce a lot of milk <laughs> yeah that's that's exactly right christine <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> when you <laughs> when you go to the airport i did not there, realize there's that. like little rooms the lactation zone right and then yeah. you give it it's like a perfectly efficient system where you can and then just you drink that milk drink your own milk right exactly yeah yeah i'm not an idiot secret. just for the right yeah. <laughs> So I have a quick question about, you know, just, you know, needing fats and versus other options for nutrition. So I was watching this show called Alone. You might be familiar with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's this guy, spoilers for everyone out there who didn't watch most recent season all the way through. But uh, so in Alone, what I learned was that if you hunt and you constantly have access to food you still will not survive. So there was a guy who killed the moose and was living off of the moose, but the moose was so lean that he was still losing weight. And so he had to like reduce down the fats and like take a spoonful of fat all of the time. And then Mm -hmm. of course there was drama with the Wolverine, but you can watch the episodes if you want to. But so, yeah, so that was interesting to me because I didn't fully appreciate I mean, I knew that you had to have a diverse diet in order to survive in certain climates, but I wasn't aware of that you would actually, even if you were eating an entire moose, you could still potentially not be nutritious and it could not be nutritious enough. And I was just wondering, like, if we're talking about fats and we're talking about running, how would that sort of endurance sport versus like an endurance alone kind of challenge how do those two things differ in terms of endurance and what your body needs yeah so in a long-term survival situation you you need to take care of all of your needs 
And in an endurance event, you can sacrifice your long-term health. I mean, really in a survival situation. I mean, the number one thing is your attitude initially. And so making sure that like everyone that loses on a loan in the beginning is because they're crying because they're homesick, um, you know, or they're, and so, bored. or they're bored. Right. And so if you don't have this mindset that you're, you know, positive and you can enjoy it, then right. you're not going to make it very far. So alone is this survival show where people get dropped off in these super remote places and they have to out survive or live longer by themselves than anybody else. And I think they usually go like 40 to 70 days or something like that. And so if you're eating nothing but like a lean fat, high protein diet, then you're not going to be putting on weight. And in an ultra race, even in something like um, the race that I'm running in Milwaukee is called six days in the dome. And one of the races that they have going on is uh, six days of just run as far as you can. And in that, you don't, you have to take care of a lot of your short-term needs, but you can sacrifice tons of sleep. You can sacrifice tons of, you know, your dietary needs and stuff like that, and just focus that concentrated amount of time on uh, exercise. And so, with alone, you have to, you have to have a more well-rounded diet. Uh, otherwise, you're not going to be able to, like, you if you had no vitamin C or something, you can risk getting scurvy or. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, there are other issues. And if you got, like, if I were in a survival situation and I was like, all right, I have like seven days to be out here tops. And I knew I could get back to where I was going in seven days. I would need water and I would not necessarily care about getting Giardia. But if I was going to be out in the wilderness, Giardia takes what, like seven to 10 days to set in, uh, the symptoms of it. And if I was in a survival situation that was indefinite, there's no way that I'd ever risk getting giardia and so i'd be boiling my water first so you can make sacrifices for a short-term event yeah short and long-term endurance that's just really interesting to me yeah i had a question sort of related to short and long term so you were saying after two hours or or three hours of intense activity you go into this phase where you're burning fat basically for your and it feels physiologically different is that first of all is that what's called sort of hitting the wall for people and then Regardless, is that something you've gotten used to over time, like that feeling of your body shifting into this different way of processing energy? And how does it feel for you, I guess? Yeah, hitting the wall, there are different ways that you can hit the wall. You can hit the wall if you're running a 400 meter dash and you just go way too fast. Like if you went all out, if you're actually able to do that, if you went all out for 400 meters, you would crash before you could finish because and hit the wall um, because you would switch from like your anaerobic capacity you would basically run out of like internal oxygen stores and you can't replace that fast enough by breathing so that's why for the 100 meter dash the pace for that is significantly faster than it is for the 400 meter dash because you have to slow down enough so that you can at least take in some oxygen so that's like an anaerobic crashing and then for something that's longer like I ran the JFK 50 miler a bunch of years ago, and I didn't really know that you had to eat during an ultra marathon. And so I would, my mom was there and my, she's now my wife, but my friend at the time. uh, You said your mom was there? She's not my wife? No, 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 definitely not that. My mom was there and there was also another person there (laughs) who was my friend and is now my wife and also still my friend. Let the record speak for itself. Yeah. And uh, so I had made mashed potatoes because it had worked in uh, another ultra that I had run before. And I would run by and I would just like reach my hand into this Tupperware and scoop out a bunch (laughs) of mashed potatoes and then run with it. And I was trying to eat and I got about, I went out wait, I, I wound up being late to the start of the race so i sprinted to the start and then um i got there just as the gun went off and this one guy like took off and was super fast and i just kind of freaked out and i chased after him and i went (laughs) way too fast in the beginning and i just i got to uh the marathon distance i can't remember what my time was but it was like probably i don't know like two hours and four 50 minutes or something like that which is sub seven um it's like i don't know six 
35 or something per mile. Um, and it was way too fast. And I got to that point and I had run marathon distance before and not needed a fuel and not, and I hadn't bonked and I got just past that. And I like started walking and then I got to the, one of the, uh, not a checkpoint, but an aid station. And my mom and Sophia were there and a couple of other friends. And they said I just looked totally sick, like the color had drained out of my face. Um, I was just shuffling along. I looked horrible. Um, mashed potatoes. I yeah. Mashed potatoes. <laughs> mashed potatoes zombie. Yeah. Um, and uh, I just, I felt completely empty and like I had no willpower and I didn't understand at all what was happening physiologically. Like it made no sense. I was in better shape than that. And it was, uh, you know, I found out years later when I started researching the physiology of endurance that my body was transitioning from, you know, burning carbs to primarily burning fat for its fuel. And I just wasn't adapted to making that transition uh, easily. Mm. I hadn't fueled early on in the race enough to sort of smooth out and prolong the transition period. I just wasn't. So how far in advance would you need to fatten up? No, uh, it's not necessarily about fattening up. It's about, yeah, it's a few different things. One is like training your body to prolong that period. So we'll talk about the diet stuff uh, in a couple episodes. But there, you know, one of the big fads right now is uh, high fat, low carb diets. And so if you live in a constant state of ketosis or where you're primarily metabolizing fat, then that makes that transition a lot easier because your body's just used to metabolizing fat. Um, I prefer not to do a high or yeah, high fat diet. I do a high carb diet and the way that I train my body to deal with that transition and to also make myself more efficient at metabolizing fats because I am not primarily using that in my diet is my long runs like this last weekend. I did 20 miles on 22 miles on Saturday and 31 miles on Sunday. And uh, for the Saturday long run, I didn't eat breakfast and then I went for my run and I didn't drink or eat during it. And then for the 30 mile run, um, I didn't eat anything for the first two hours. And then I only had um, I'm using untapped maple syrup products who is sponsoring my run. Thanks a bunch to uh, untapped local Vermont company. Um, And so I took a couple of little syrup packets. And so I had about 200 uh, calories during my run out of, you know, a three and a half hour run to run 32, 31 miles, something like that. So what does it feel like? I mean, just, so are you used to the feeling of like, oh, my body's transitioning now and you don't do that disoriented shuffle anymore because <laughs> yeah, I mean, phys- you could... physically prepared, but also mentally prepared for it? Yeah, so I I kind of experienced it. I mean, sometimes it's like a big, hard crash and you're running just fine and you don't really realize how close to the edge you are. And then all of a sudden you just like totally fade your concentration, your ability to concentrate slips, uh, your legs feel heavy. Everything just seems like much more of a slog and an effort. So about 20, I think it was about 20 miles in or no, 18 miles in, I stopped and went to the bathroom and then had one of my little maple syrup packets and it just like perked everything up. And then the last hour was easy peasy as they say and i just kept getting faster and faster and i wound up running yeah like uh 620 620 615 and then 556 for my last four miles wow and so it just like kept feeling better and better so and that was once Untapped. i probably had, <laughs> yeah um makes everything better over. yeah Bing. Wow. how do they get the syrup out if they don't tap Tree. <laughs> milked. Uh, yeah, it's all milked. <laughs> it milk. That's yeah. Nipples. That's the, the yeah. lactate. No. That's a, yeah. That's the lactate. I see. Yeah. I'm, thanks. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, yeah, we've got fueling challenges. So you need to take in some sort of energy. Um, what are some of the other challenges of physical exertion? Waste products, maybe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> see episode or season two. Yeah, I was well, just going to make a plug there. I, moisture and water, I think, falls outside of the fuel category. Yeah, definitely. So uh, just to uh, address Glenn real quick. So, okay, so when you are metabolizing glycogen, 
your body is breaking it down in the presence of plenty of oxygen. If you're just like sitting on the couch, Christine, I'm looking at you. Uh, I'm not without judgment, without judgment. Don't worry. (laughs) I'm going to break a world record. Just you watch. (laughs) What's your world record going to be in? Um, uh, Sedentary. Uh, The sedentary event in which we sit uh, and it's actually harder than it looks. Those bed sores, they don't um, they don't clean themselves. So. <laughs> Gross. Just like the t-shirt says. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I know a sweat mopper that can yeah, assist okay. you in your... We, yeah, we could. We're available for that, I suppose. Yeah, is yeah. it on an hourly basis or can I... Yeah. Volume, rent, volume. Can I yeah, for volume basis. <laughs> Um, so with your lactate threshold, as you are breaking down uh, through anaerobic glycolysis, as you're breaking down glycogen and releasing energy from those, uh, one of the bi- first byproducts of breaking down glycogen is pyruvate. And pyruvate normally just enters into the Krebs cycle. And so you're breaking down pyruvate and getting out ATP. So you're releasing energy that can be used for every physiological process in your body, essentially. But when you start to ec- or increase your rate of exertion, you are increasing the amount of glycogen that is being broken down. And so then you're increasing the amount of pyruvate and you're increasing the amount of oxygen that's being utilized up. And you get to a certain point where you can't break down the glycogen fast enough. And so one of the other byproducts then is pyruvate gets converted into lactate. And lactate is fine. It can still be used as, it used to be like the lactic acid was the the devil in endurance running. And like when you hit the wall, it was because you had lactic acid buildup. And it's sort of changed a little bit in the last decade or so where now lactic acid is related to lactate and lactate is a potential energy source. So it's not all bad. Um, But you get to this point where lactic acid starts to build up faster than the lactate component of it can be utilized in exertion. And so that's one of these like waste products that your body is constantly breaking down. But once you get to a certain threshold, then you start to accumulate more and more of this waste product that can lead to like muscle fatigue and exhaustion uh, and muscle soreness and tightness. So that's something that you definitely have to be aware of. Um, And so like, yeah, this is at your sort of maximal exertion level. The lactate threshold is about 60% of that maximal exertion level. Yeah. And this is something that's like flexible, like someone just straight off a couch is going to have a pretty low lactate threshold. But the more that you train, the higher that goes. So when we're talking about the balance between something that's mental and something that's physiological, if you are experiencing a physiological, say, buildup of, you know, that or like at what point is it truly like you are like no matter how much your brain is willing to push you you are physically and physiologically incapable of taking another step yeah i mean i think this is you know the central governor model which is tim noakes is is uh it's his fit model for endurance is that you can't ever get to that place Right. Like Ah, there are an animal that doesn't have higher thinking capacity. You can actually get them to the point where they will run themselves to exhaustion and death. Uh, And then with humans, we just have uh, unless there's some extreme external circumstance, whether you've like downed gallons of water uh, and so you throw off your salt balance or if there's extreme heat and you get like heat stroke or something heat stroke is more common in shorter events than longer events because when you burn energy you're generating heat and in longer events you're able to dissipate heat quicker but yeah you can't really get to that point under like quote-unquote normal conditions which is kind of sad, right? So then it's like, you know, you can build up a tolerance to endure pain. And in stress tests, endurance athletes do better than non-endurance athletes um, and pain tolerance tests. So you can get better at tolerating that pain, but there's still a breaking point that, yeah, mentally you just can't get past. And if you, I mean, if you listen to some of the more elite athletes, uh, they talk a lot about like Steve Prefontaine, who is an amazing endurance runner talks about 
like how he was just he could endure more pain and suffering than anybody else and that's why he was so good not everybody thinks that way but (laughs) yeah Yeah. isn't there a lot of controversy around that though like the cultures in um west africa that also like are some of the fastest people in the world and a lot of that is because they build a or the theory is that it's because they build a culture of like a high tolerance or a high pain threshold isn't that kind of controversial or yeah one of the explanations that i heard was like for um some of these rites of passages that there was like you know some extreme physical pain that uh these young kids had to endure um that would make them better at tolerating pain later in life and i think you know that there is controversy a lot around that there are also other explanations that like uh, like Ethiopia and there's just an incredible culture around endurance and so they have you know it's like a professional thing for the not the average runner but for uh, there's more money for people that are training to be come pro- or not pro- to become professional athletes but to become elite athletes and there's no infrastructure here in the states really to drive that other than collegiate athletics Um, But in these other countries, there's just like a really strong cultural incentive that funnels like Kenyan athletes or Ethiopian athletes into those athletics. If you look around and you see your peers are running and people in your community are these incredible figures internationally in the world of athletics, then you want to emulate that. And so, yeah, yeah, I meant East Africa. I get my Wests and Easts mixed up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So. I think, Christine, you mentioned water, hydration. Yeah, water. And so there's sort of two components to water. Well, do you want to say more about what you meant? Um, Just separating that out from the nutrition aspect, from the fuel aspect, that being something that like our body needs to do or needs to survive. Yeah. <laughs> but also for like temperature regulation and for organ function (laughs) i don't know (laughs) making sure we're getting enough oxygen in our bloodstream that sort of stuff yeah 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 exactly i mean i think hydration is important for uh one main reason and then a bunch of other main reasons but one main reason is because water fuels sweating uh and then Mm -hmm. the other reason is a few reasons where the sweating helps regulate our temperature but then the others are it helps eliminate waste like your nitrogenous waste through urine yeah transporting nutrients and energy throughout our cells one other question that is not uh, appropriate and you can cut this out uh so you know in dune where they have those um still suits where they just recycle their urine and sweat um Is that possible? Could we do that for runners where you just make a little running still suit and you just become a perfectly efficient system of. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in Waterworld with Kevin Costner, he. The first scene is. All good references. Yeah, he's. You great uh, movied Waterworld, but not Dune. (laughs) I was kidding. I actually have a scene I just thought was listed as the worst movie of all time. Oh, that's great. Yeah. No, 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 no. It's so good. (laughs) It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. It's Pete Kevin Costner. Yeah. I mean, you know, a significant component. So humans don't have not evolved to be extremely efficient with water. Like they're total extremes. Like uh, a lot of itinerant mammals, large grazing mammals don't really rely on drinking a lot of water. They get all, because if you're itinerant and you're wandering around, you're not gonna have a constant water source. Mm -hmm. Or if you're a desert animal, like a kangaroo rat, you are not gonna have any water. Uh, If you put a a kangaroo rat in a cage with a bowl of water and no food, it'll die of dehydration because it won't drink it. They get all their water from metabolic sources, from breaking down. Right. Like if if you run photosynthesis in a reverse, so photosynthesis is water plus carbon dioxide plus sunlight equals sugar and oxygen. And to get energy from sugar, you run it in reverse. So sugar plus oxygen equals water and carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. And so if you're breaking down carbohydrates, then you are releasing water. And that's a major source of water for many, 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 many animals, especially animals that live in really dry environments. So, uh, so yeah, so a bunch of like urine is just water. 
that right. solutes are dissolved in. And that's just, I mean, some people just like the taste. I mean, just just go for it. Some people. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know that I Speak would necessarily drink my... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I would drink my own urine in a in an ultra marathon, but maybe huh. in a real pickle. Yeah, well, you could flavor it, you know, with Gatorade or something. A little uh, Arnold Palmer iced tea mix. Oh, yeah, a little yeah. lemon. Yeah. Uh, I, Easy peasy lemon squeezy. <laughs> that's where it comes from. <laughs> so if I was so like for example, my cat, she you know lots of cats they end up dying from like renal failure because they don't get enough water because they often expect to get their water from their prey my question is i think i've always imagined it as being like well there's moisture in the actual meat that they're eating or in the actual intestines Mm. that they're eating but i didn't even consider the fact that it might be about like breaking down carbohydrates that's really interesting yeah i mean it's probably both like i don't drink a, a ton and so I, you know, I used to kind of mentally keep a budget of what I was intaking. And I, my sister and I both don't drink very much. Sweating is a, a huge way of, of monitoring or of your body regulating temperature. And so as sweat evaporates, it draws heat away from your body. I weighed myself before and after my run on, on Sunday. And I lost, I think, about six pounds and that's all water water. so one of the interesting things is like a huge amount of weight loss is through exhaling right so you're exhaling water vapor and carbon dioxide which again those are the waste products of burning sugars could this be a diet like a fad diet just just heavy breathing breathing (laughs) yeah kind of creepy heavy breathing diet See, that's yeah. what I'm going to be doing to get through the my couch sitting. <laughs> yeah, heavy breathing. Yeah. Yeah. So I lost, you know, six pounds in about three and a half hours or so of running. I, I don't sweat all that much, right? So, you know, that's a pretty easy way of getting a sense of how much water loss you have due to sweat. Haile Geber Selassie, who is, uh, if you're a runner and you follow running even slightly, that's like a huge name. He's one of the greatest distance runners of all time. And he ran, a, he was a world record holder in the marathon at one point, ran 204-26 in Berlin. And they measured him before and after, I don't know if it was that race or maybe another one, but he was a notoriously heavy uh, sweater. So he would lose, uh, they measured in a lab, 3.6 liters of water in an hour. And so if he's running for two what? hours, that's... That's, yeah, 7.2 liters <laughs> like of water. Like two gallons of water. So at the Berlin race, he rated 128 pounds roughly at the start and then 115 at the end. So he lost 13 pounds, which is about 10% of his body weight. Does it help to chug water intense. at the start? Just chug it because you know you're going to sweat it out. I bet not. It's like those people no. who chug water before they go into the desert and then they're just like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just melt into a puddle. Is there ways to like improve your sweating? Like, can you get like pore, like micro pore opening surgery, or like, are there performance enhancing drugs that are just focused on like helping you sweat more? I, that's a that's a good question. I think there's a pretty strong genetic component to it. I don't know what sort of uh, training strategies people might use to sweat less. Wait, is sweating less good or sweating more good? Because sweating more would keep you cooler, right? Well, so this is one of those things that we were talking about earlier, where in a short race, it doesn't really matter if you're losing 10% of your body weight, because you can just gain that back pretty quickly by hydrating afterwards. And as long as it's not damaging your ability to perform, then it's actually a good thing to lose weight because you have excess weight to start with and you get lighter (laughs) towards the end of the race. So it's actually good. There's other stuff like if you're sweating that much, then you're going to be chafing probably pretty bad. And so for two hours, it might be easy to endure it. But if you were running like 100K or 100 miles and you were sweating that much, then you'd be chafing pretty bad. It causes chafing? Yeah, I mean, salt and water crusting up on your your racing kit yeah <laughs> get those so if you oiled bolts. yourself up though beforehand maybe yeah maybe i mean uh, uh, yeah but that, then it might you just, the sweat 
You just gave your yourself away as uh, someone who's never run an ultra uh, or a marathon because at, at the local marathon here in Burlington, Vermont, the uh, Vermont City Marathon, they have these cardboard things that volunteers will hold out and they have these at other major marathons and it's just got a ton of Vaseline slabbed onto the cardboard so you, you can grab it like mashed by. potatoes you just grab it like it's mashed potatoes <laughs> you just grab <laughs> it not in the mouth potatoes. just right to the crotch you put it yeah yeah that's where that crotch. saying comes from Sw- grab it like mashed potatoes <laughs> <laughs> let's start it it's starting now yeah. you'll hear it everywhere but then there, there are specialty products. I think it's like Squirrel Nut Butter or something like that is a company that makes, uh, yeah, uh, lubricants, uh, yeah, That's for racing. That's a funny name. We got to say yeah. it's a funny name. Well, if you're still talking about breathing, I would love to hear some of your breathing strategies. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any real breathing strategies. I read this book that was a little bit obnoxious, and it seemed like, Maybe the author didn't have a, a real clear sense of physiology um, and evolution. <laughs> it's a book by this guy, James Nestor. Um, and it's pretty interesting. I mean, he talks about, you know, if you're breathing in through your mouth, the air goes from the atmosphere almost directly. I mean, it passes through your trachea, but it goes uh, through an open cavity, your mouth, and then down into your lungs. And so whatever the quality of the air, the temperature and the pressure and the humidity of it is what enters your lungs. And so he is a big advocate of breathing in through your nose. And so sort of just like training your body to breathe in through the nose, because as air goes into through your nose, you have all these turbinals. There's a lot of surface area. So it sort of pressurizes the air before it reaches your lungs. Uh, It also goes through, I mean, your nose is just a very moist area. And so the air that you're breathing in spends more time going through a moist chamber. And so it gets moisturized before it enters your lungs and the temperature also sort of approaches the the same temperature as your core. So are you a <laughs> nose breather? Uh, I don't I think I'm <laughs> probably like uh, both. It's really, really hard to breathe mm-hmm. in if you're running anything, for me, anything, I almost never train at slower than seven minutes per mile, but anything faster than that. And I can't breathe in through my nose, but just trying to like, he writes about all like, uh, for him, it's a gospel, you know, more than anything. And so we kind of diverge because he's a little too dogmatic about it. But there's a, a lot of evidence for some of the like homeostasis benefits of nasal breathing. And so uh, I've been sleeping with scotch tape over my mouth. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> to like subconsciously train my, yeah, my body into nasal breathing. What about the amount that you breathe? Like when you're pacing yourself, you know, it's like you take a certain number of steps and then you like make sure you're always inhaling on a certain step and exhaling on a certain step. Like how do you time it? I, I don't. I With a lot of my training, I probably could get into that stuff. I tend to err more on the side of like intuitive training. And so, yeah, I, I don't really consciously try to think about my breathing while I'm running. It's the same with like my running efficiency and... I don't train, I don't like consciously think about, okay, if I put my foot down on the ground like this, I'm going to be more efficient. Instead, what I do for that is I just run barefoot for most of my running. And so the idea with that is like my feet are really good sources of sensory input. So if I'm doing something that's inefficient or like if you land hard on your feet, that energy is being lost because it's just like slamming into your skeletal system. And so every time you make noise when you're running or you feel a strong impact there's energy being lost in your stride and so being barefoot sort of helps minimize the amount of impact and sort of lost energy that you have in every single step and so i thought i could just subconsciously train myself to be more efficient by being barefoot most of the time when i run Um, i also there was a long time when i was probably like 2008 into 2009 where I would do these prolonged sort of fasts (laughs) where I'd been tracking coyotes and domestic dogs and coyotes were way more efficient in how they moved. And it wasn't because they're physically, like morphologically that different from dogs. 
although pugs you could argue pretty easily that's not true but one of the big differences they just don't know where their next meal is coming from so they are just sort of intuitively more efficient in how they use their energy so i figured if i minimized my uh food intake my calorie intake and did these like prolonged fasts and then gorging on food and then prolonged fast gorging on food that my body would just sort of intuitively shift how it was moving and how it was physiologically the physiological processes that um my body was doing to just stay awake and alive uh would just become more efficient through time does that work i wish i had data on it i don't i mean i have gotten faster, but whether that's because I'm more experienced and just stronger, I'm not really sure. Getting faster by fasting. You could buy Getting, both, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah faster um, by fasting by Professor Iwigi. Have you thought of a system where each time you sit down to a meal, you just like roll, roll some dice and like a certain number you don't get to eat? <laughs> going to add like a Dungeons and Dragons That would be really awesome. Um, <laughs> then I would really, every I would have no idea whether I was going to eat yeah, that day or not. Know. Yeah, Keep and if you like if you it. rolled like a crit fail, you'd have to throw your mashed potatoes against the wall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you'd have to use mashed potatoes as your as your nut butter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it. <laughs> it took me a second to catch up to that one. Uh, yeah, no thanks. <laughs> no um, thanks. No, thank you. So overheating. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you probably had go for it. No, no, go for it. Well, one of my questions was when you're running these races, uh, I, I mean, I feel hot when I run. When I run, you know, like 20 feet or so, I feel pretty hot. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't imagine. So when you run, is your body temperature like, are you running a slight fever? And do you, are you like sort of on this edge of an uncomfortable temperature? Um, the yeah. average runner. And then is there a danger of like getting into like a feverish, like delusional, like overheating kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. And I mentioned that heat stroke was more common in shorter events. And I don't mean like a 100 meter dash, but like uh, 10Ks, uh, half marathons and stuff like that, because you are burning fuel at such a rapid rate. And it's hard for you to dissipate heat fast enough. But if you're running slower, then you're not burning as much fuel. And so your metabolism slows down and your heat generation also slows down. Um, but your body's pretty damn good at dissipating heat. And so I think of it, you know, there are a, a few things like I will cut my hair really short uh, <laughs> before my race. And there's sort of this myth that you lose most of your, like 40% of your heat through your head, which is not true. Um, you lose heat evenly throughout your body. Uh, I was reading something and they were like, if that was true, then in the middle of winter, you should just wear a hat and no shorts uh, and you would be warmer. <laughs> yeah, so uh, if you start to heat up, then what your body can do is pump blood out to your extremities where you have more surface area. And so you would be able to lose heat through your extremities much quicker. Um, you can also, you know, you start sweating and evaporative cooling is a big thing. One of would the things help? I would... Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but if you had extra... The more surface area you have, the better you're able to cool yourself. So Yeah. But it helped to get like enormously fat one season and then lose the weight and you oh. had all these wrinkles and then you could lose weight and you could <laughs> dissipate your heat that way. That's a great idea. So there's uh so <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> or just Glenn. do some weird surgery where you like It's a great idea. Like, yeah, thank you. Thanks for recognizing get that. Get stegosaurus like plates <laughs> on your back. It's yeah. the opposite of the fast fasting and get fast strategy. Well, yeah. be part of it. I was going to say that's why Sharpays are the world's greatest endurance athletes. We <laughs> <laughs> can go back and edit that, that in, like it. you just put it in. Yeah. Um, Bam. Yeah. So there's something called gigantothermy, which is that uh, things that are gigantic have a hard time losing heat because they have such low surface area to volume ratios. And so, uh, like, um, uh, for a mouse, it's really hard to stay warm during the winter. But for a polar bear, it's a lot easier because they're just larger. And so with dinosaurs, uh, gigantothermia is great in cold places, but in really hot places, it's problematic. And so dinosaurs had, there's a lot of evidence that they had 
like increased vascularization on uh, like parts of their face, like in their nose or on ridges in order to be able to have more blood at the surface and be able to um, dissipate heat out through uh, like parts of their face. There's something super bizarre where giraffes have more blood vessels under their spots than they do in the white spaces in between. And so there can be like a nine degree Celsius difference in temperature between the dark spots and the light spots so that they can lose. There's a huge component because it gives them a, a camouflage component because it gives them sort of this dappled look. Um, but there's a secondary benefit where uh, they're able to dissipate heat through uh, those darker spots. Um, oh, evolution and, is magnificent. Yeah. They also, I mean, they also have like those, if you look at the, like if you took an animal that had a similar weight to a giraffe, they, and then you just looked at the surface area of skin that they have, they would both have roughly the same surface area of skin, even though giraffes have those big, long necks. So they actually don't lose energy or heat through their, their necks. But one of the things that their necks do is they're, they do a lot of postural stuff. So not heat dissipation, but preventing heat absorption. And so they'll posture themselves so that their head is angled up towards the sun so that most of their surface area is actually not in direct contact with the sun. It's similar to humans where we're bipedal. And so we absorb in the middle of the day a lot less heat than would a like a cow or a horse or a gazelle, these other things. So we're just unless they hopped around on their back legs like in animal form. The pigs unless they the hopped around on their back legs. Do you ever lean yes. into the sun like when you're running, kind of like point yourself? Yeah, sometimes it gets awkward if the sun is behind me and then I'm like leaning, <laughs> leaning backwards back at a 45 <laughs> degree angle, like or if it's off to the like side. A limbo. It's like a limbo kind of look. I think. Yeah. It can make for some real silly walks, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's worth it for the heat. Yeah. So if you see a lot like elephants, for example, and they have their large ears because they're trying to dissipate heat yeah. um, and they're, you know, working in, they're living in, in areas that are quite warm. So do you see the opposite adaptations in colder climates where you see like uh, limbs that would otherwise or um, features that would otherwise be like are like shrinking in size to us to conserve yeah, heat yeah it's the abgs uh ABGs. allen's always, rule always Bergman's be rule. yeah and gloger's rule um so allen's rule is for a for appendages and allen's rule is that as you go further north uh, or f further south from the equator, farther from the equator, limbs, appendages tend to get smaller as you get uh, to yeah. colder and colder climates. And so, yeah, if you look at an Arctic hare versus a jackrabbit, Arctic hares have uh, shorter legs, shorter ears, shorter noses and stuff like that. So there's a, a shorter neck, so a whole bunch of different stuff. Um, there's Great. also like Arctic foxes versus kit foxes have uh, very, very different morphologies. There's also behavioral stuff where like a Arctic fox will sleep with its nose pointed in towards its belly. So it breathes out warm, moist air into its belly. So it stays warm that way. And then jackrabbits, when they sleep, they'll sleep with their like limbs sprawled out in their belly on the ground to dissipate heat as quickly as possible. Are you more like a jackrabbit or a or an Arctic hare when you sleep? I think our listeners might want to know. <laughs> what would you guess? Do you, do you curl up or do you splay? Well, I I think you're kind of diminutive. I think you're more in the the you know you would want to try to stay warm. So I'd say you curl up in like the fetal position. In the <laughs> tiniest little tiniest little ball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yeah. Just roll uh, around. Like yeah. a little dog bed that you. I'm like a, <laughs> a little dog. <laughs> yeah, I look like a little popple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i you know uh stegosauruses are one of these things that have these large plates on their back for dissipation and they act kind of like a radiator where they're designed to lose as much heat as possible but it's kind of up in the air because there's one juvenile stegosaurus skeleton that was found that was pretty complete and it has no plates so what would that indicate we live in a cold place or a high place so well, the adults in the same area. Age. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's something that they get when they, as they develop. Yeah. Why wouldn't Sexual they? selection or something. Yeah. 
But, I mean, when they're bigger and adults, they're bigger, right? So then they might need to regulate the people more. Yeah, that's a possibility. The other possibility yeah. is that they just didn't find them. The, the plates in the back. Because <laughs> yeah. they were like... Oh, yeah. <laughs> because it was old. from... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> years old. Yeah. Um, so, Christine, you started to say this. and uh, One of the things that I... Because I was talking about, like, shaving my head um, to increase the amount of heat dissipation. But also, I was thinking, I should just get a whole bunch of implants, if, like, scattered throughout my body. That right. would be, like, these tiny little... Holding uh, gill-like things? Yeah, sticking out of my skin so that I would increase the surface area. Yeah, um, you could so, like make you could put a, just like a bunch of horns on your head. You I think a bunch of ears, just like go the elephant a way, bunch just, like, of get ears. a bunch of extra ears. Well, I was thinking it would have to be under my skin so that my skin would have more surface area, not just right. so that I would have. Well, no, horns no, no, that's what I mean. Like there are people who cosmetically they oh, yes. need to like put stuff underneath their skin and like make it look like they have horns and stuff. Yeah, so you just put this um, you could yeah, look like, like a Simpsons character. Yeah, yeah. Alligators have these. They're called uh, uh, osteoderms. These like mm. all those little ridges and stuff. And there are other lizards that have these like uh, horny toads or horn toads, which live in the desert, have all these little spikes and ridges, which definitely serve like a defensive purpose for them, but also um, can yeah help with. Uh, heat so does that help them? It helps them cool down, but it also help them heat up if they're basking. Like the more yeah surface area they have, yeah it goes both ways. Yeah. Do you guys know Carnotaurus? Mm-mm. I think Carnotaurus makes a brief uh, appearance in Jurassic World, the second one. But there are these. Oh no, I do know what you're talking about. They're the uh, Tyrannosaur. Or yeah, but yeah. I know. Yeah, with the little horns on them. Yeah, yeah. and those might be sexual selection too. But they're uh, you know other yeah mechanisms for losing heat. Toucans have those giant bills, which are right. you take heat. Uh, like thermal images of them they can like flush a bunch of blood into their uh, beaks and lose heat that way which is kind of cool so that is really yeah cool. you could go for that strategy and then it would help with the nose breathing just like a See, what are some other strategies <laughs> yeah. what are some for, other for weirdo strategies that animals use to dissipate heat I'm just giving, I just, this list is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would, yeah. So evaporative cooling, it, like for us, we sweat, which is a, a huge thing, but most animals don't have sweat glands. But so with birds that can't sweat, uh, there are a couple of cool ones. Glenn, you probably know one of the cool ones that, yeah, birds do to cool down in hot temperatures. Today, there's like pigeon's milk. <laughs> I think that's for feeding. <laughs> yeah, that's. There's, there's the salt. You know, there's all the tube noses. Oh yeah, well explain. Salt. Yeah, explain that real quick. This is another thing you might want to try, by the way, to help with the chafing, because I think pelagic birds that live primarily yeah. in the ocean have ways of getting rid of salt. And I don't know if that means they can drink salt water, but they can tolerate more salt in their diet, and so they have these organs that somehow process the salt and eject them through these holes in their noses. Which look oh, like wow. tubes, and so I think yeah. they're called tube nose, tube nose group. And yeah, I want one of those. I have really tubes. Cool. My nose, if you look at it, it looks like there's two tubes there, but I can't get any salt to come out of them. It would have been such a great scene in the intro to Waterworld where Kevin Costner <laughs> is drinking his great own movies. urine and then it kind of pans over and you're just like drinking salt water and then just like snotting out salt out of your, <laughs> <laughs> your nose. <laughs> Um, yeah, gulls yeah. actually have these little grooves on the side of their bill and then like a drip tip at the end that uh, salt salt water, um, like concentrated salt water will wow. be excreted out and then uh, drip down off their beak. Is that something that they seek out to drink or is it just like because they're constantly in contact with it around the ocean? Can they actually yeah, because drink salt water? Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. But they also go, oh, But I don't know if that's... What we're talking about for heat regulation? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, right. can use their brood patch. Can use their brood patch. Can get an emergency brood patch. Regulate heat. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a good idea because you know if you lose feathers, because that's one of the things like you could think about it the opposite way, where in the winter you want to retain heat, so then in the summer you want to lose heat, and so a brood patch is where yeah, like a a mama bird loses a bunch of feathers on her um like uh, abdomen, and then. It has a bunch of blood vessels right there at the surface so she can lose heat and give that heat over to the egg while she incubates. Right. 
And then if you're uh, like cervids, so deer, moose, owl, caribou, they have separate hair in guard hair in the uh, winter versus the summer. And you can find big clumps of it in the summer when they start to shed. I think it's Wilson's warblers make their nests. Nests out of it? Yeah, they, out of moose hair. Because uh, the moose hair in the winter is all hollow. And then they shed it in the spring when the warblers are nesting. And they have these nice insulative hairs for their nesting material, which is kind of cool. So that that's sort of like one way of losing something to become better at staying cooler. But with birds, the one that I was thinking of, urohydrosis, which we talked about like in season your, two. Pee on your legs. Yeah, peeing on your legs. Um, but birds don't pee per se, but they have, you know, um, the pup. W- <laughs> <laughs> yes, they have pup. Um, and so uh, storks, uh, herons, egrets, uh, and then also the vultures will puke on their legs, <laughs> and it, it's sort of the same thing. Where because their 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 waist is so wet, uh, watery, that when it evaporates, it draws away heat. So yeah. the fact that cats and dogs don't have sweat glands that like we do when they they do on their get, paws, they do on their paws, and then they As you know, get rid primates. of a lot of moisture from from um, just like slobbering. But why that? Why don't they sweat? Yeah, like what, basically what are the origins of the sweat glands that that we have? Is it just primates is like the first, our most common primate ancestor is the one that has sweat glands like that? I don't yeah, know so, a lot about sweat glands, turns out. Um, we have two different types of sweat glands. We have like our, our smelly sex signaling mm-hmm. sweat glands, which are called mm-hmm. apocrine uh, mm-hmm. sweat glands. And then you have the other ones that are for evaporative co- uh, cooling, the eccrine glands. And uh, those are that secrete you, like a watery sweat all over your body. Yeah, so the eccrine glands are found in other species, like primates have them on their hands and feet. Uh, they add a little bit of grippiness uh, when they're climbing on things. So it is helpful for arboreal species. Horses also uh, will sweat. Uh, My friend in elementary school was obsessed with horses and we were in Southern California, but even still like at night, it would cool down a lot. And so they would have to shave their horses, particularly in the winter, because it would exercise them and then not shave them down to the bone, but just like trim their hair. And part of the reason is because they do sweat. And so if you exercise a horse and then it sweats and then you just leave them out at night, then they can yeah it doesn't evaporate you know as quickly because it gets matted in their fur uh, and then they would get really cold and can get hypothermic um so that can be problematic yeah so wait Uh, sweat on sweat on your hands helps you climb because it always seems with us like when people get sort of nervous and get sweaty palms they kind of can't hold on to things as well yeah i mean there's a difference between like saturated sopping wet hands and then like a lightly uh yeah moistened but i can never open the peanut butter jars when my hands are wet (laughs) that might be a perfectly smooth surface where that's the problem as opposed to like a you don't find that in nature peanut butter jars yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i mean most primates have like slightly grippy hands yeah is that what our fingerprints are for Gripping. Nobody knows. Yeah, nobody knows. I thought they were for uh, tracking criminals. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's sexual selection. You know, I don't know about you guys, but when I was yeah. younger, I'd look at someone to check out the fingerprints. Oh yeah, Bef- those are some it's deep grooves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before you but- got on the call, Glenn, Christine, and I were actually <laughs> remarking about how nicely formed your fingerprints are. <laughs> Thank you for noticing. I spent yeah. a lot of time polishing them. <laughs> no problem. Um, you, Christine, you asked about other weird things. So the urohydrosis, the, the puping on legs. Glenn, yeah. love the word. Thank you. There's another really, really weird one called guler fluttering. And this is something that like uh, uh, pelicans do it. I think there are some uh, storks and uh, other birds that do this where they do this like really rapid fluttering of their uh, throat and it pumps, it's basically the equivalent of intense panting 
in dogs where uh, it pumps in and out air really quickly. So it's not a way of getting oxygen in. It's a way of getting uh, like warm air out of your body very quickly, like pumping it out really quick. So that's a Can pretty you do cool it? Have you strategy. tried it? All running? <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah. I'm just saying, uh, it's worth a shot. Yeah, I've done it in some of my hotter races, and uh, it like, also say, weirds out your competitors. You're on a, you're not on a track race, but you're out, and the mashed potatoes were like two miles away. You could like do some cooler watering. Yeah, I usually get to the mashed potato. I might be confused about the mashed potatoes, what they're used for at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, when I would start to eat, you know, I would take advantage, or st- when I would start to get hot, I would take advantage of the mashed potatoes and rub them on my body and get some evaporative <laughs> cooling. And then I would do my ghouler fluttering. Uh, and then if that didn't work, I would just urinate all over myself. Yeah, urinate all pointing <laughs> in the sun. Yeah. <laughs> and if at that point I wasn't cool, I would drop out of the race. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. I think it might be worth including some video of your race in the show notes for a final one, if you're doing any of those things. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, it's going to look I much like you. money I don't dare you to do all those things. <laughs> yeah. Just for part of it. <laughs> all right, so next time we're talking about the psychology yeah. of endurance. Endurance. Yeah, I think Glenn is going to be taking the lead on this one, which I'm excited for. Um, <laughs> oh, I, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's news to me. <laughs> I... <laughs> Yes. I mean, I've run, I ran a 5K once and pretty well at it, I must say. Pretty, pretty fast. We ran a 5K once and um, I remember I was running and this guy came running towards me and he was like leaning over to one side and he was maybe 70 years old and he was like running with like one arm held in it. I thought he was maybe having a heart attack. (laughs) And we're like, oh, look at that poor guy. He's like doing so well though, you know, doing this coming out straight. Then I realized that he had already like gone to the checkpoint and was on his way back. So he was like way ahead of me. So I was like staggering like a heart attack victim. Just like <laughs> his way that, to an but ambulance. That didn't or... break my spirit. I kept going. And that's, that's the kind of inspirational anecdote that I'll be focusing on. Mm-hmm, perfect. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Great. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks for joining us. And uh, yeah, stay tuned next time when we talk about the mental side of endurance. Wahoo! Ta-ta. Okay, bye. Now that we've dialed in the physical side of our training, it's time to look at the wild ways that our brain tries to limit our performance and how we can train ourselves to overcome our mental limitations. Until then, if you're digging the podcast, give us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen, or head over to crowspath.org podcast to get in touch with us through the Woodland Message Board. Here you can ask us questions, suggest future topics, and even post fake ads that we'll read on the air. All right, naturalists, that's it for now. We'll see you next time on The Single Acre.